0: So So this afternoon we'll continue, of course, in this nighttime dream yoga to more and more advanced practices. And we've already been through one section where it said, where Ghatarabhache commented uh, that, well, if if you haven't achieved shamatha and vipassana, then this probably isn't going to work. So you might very well wonder, it would be quite reasonable, to wonder, well, why are we continuing? Now we're going beyond that, right? And there's another whole bardo to come that may very well be more advanced than what we're already dealing with, and what, and what we're already dealing with is kind of intended for people who have already achieved shamatha vipassana. So what are we doing here? I think that would be a good question. If we look at the shamatha practices themselves, which I've often taught in secular contexts, I've taught them to business people, I've taught them all over the place, for education context... Uh, the CEB, which is intended to be secular, at the, at the request of His Holiness, secular, secular, um, the shamatha practices by themselves. Actually, once His Holiness said in a Mind and Life meeting, shamatha is not dharma. He said, shamatha is not dharma. He's right. No debate. I'm not going to stand up and say, yes it is, I'm Mr. I'm Mr. Shamatha. No, I'm not going to debate. By itself, what makes that shamatha? Sensations. You're, you're looking at the sensations of the breath, of the nostrils. You're breathing in, breathing out. A woodchuck <laughs> is sitting on the ground, feeling the sensations of the breath in and out. A wood, woodchuck practicing Dharma, you know. So I agree. You're watching your breath. Big deal. You're watching thoughts come and go. Big deal. You're aware of being aware. Congratulations. But what makes that Dharma, you know, and by itself, I I I just have to agree with His Holiness. You know, it's, by itself, it's called lumaden, ethically neutral. It's nothing unwholesome about it, but wholesome, in and of itself, just watching your breath or watching thoughts coming and going, where's the wholesome part, you know? Uh, and then one can easily imagine, I mean, something It's true, and that is there can be all kinds of motivations for that. The military has gotten very interested in uh, mindfulness. So I, I know one neuroscientist. She got a whopping big grant from, I think it was the... The Marines, of the Army, to teach mindfulness, you know, so they can be all that they can be, and be more effective as soldiers. And I don't think that's wrong. I mean, the United States has to have a military. We're in this world; you have to have a military. Uh, better to have mindful soldiers than unmindful soldiers, I guess. Right. Uh, and then there's a lot of re- brain research they're giving now. Obama's giving 100 million every year uh, for brain research, uh, and they're thinking of like 12 billion over the coming decade or so. And and who's paying for it? Well, a big chunk is coming from the military. Because they would like to develop soldiers that, you know, they could have, you know, quasi-robotic soldiers who will never get tired and always be up and ready to fight and kill and so forth. And so, again, is that wrong? I mean, well, the United States, like China, England, the UK, and so forth and so on, they have militaries. Better to have good militaries than bad ones. But is that Dharma? No, not even close. It's just developing a better military. you know. So, as you can see, it all hinges on motivation. Everything hinges on motivation. So what's the motivation? How significant is it? Well, uh, first of all, renunciation. Meditation, I mean, so much. If you look in the press, most of the references to meditation now are mindfulness. And then it's mindfulness for business, mindfulness for stress reduction, mindfulness for more productivity, more creativity, better athletics, and so forth. And that's all good. But it's not dharma. It's not dharma. It's simply meditation to make samsara work out better. And I, li- I would like samsara to work out better. I'm not being sarcastic at all. Better samsara works out better than worse. This is why when we see people enjoying mundane pleasures, like watching people enjoying the pool or the tennis courts, it's a time for mudita, and not a time for condescension. Oh, we're practicing dharma over here, and you're just doing, you know. No. No, well, no. That's not right. And so, but what is it? Now, we've all been through this. You can develop great attention skills to plot a murder. You know, I mean something really clearly unethical. Or rob a bank and develop your attention skills so when you're robbing the bank, you're totally relaxed, your mind is very focused, very clear, realizing the illusory nature of everything except for the money. (laughs) So, same, same practices. Same practices. But it's not enough. As I've emphasized before, it's not enough to be fed up with samsara. That just shows you where you don't want to be, but it doesn't show you where, where you do want to be or whether there's any, anywhere you do want to be. anywhere Anything really worth striving for except for not here. You know, not here. And so really having understanding, understanding vision. That's what, that's what we we're focusing on this morning. Vision. What would you love to be free from? You know, that are the true causes of happening. Not just your bad next-door neighbor or, you know, smoggy city or whatever. What would you really love to be free from when you have identified with understanding and insight? What are the true causes of suffering? Not merely the catalysts. And what are the true causes of happiness? Not just having a happy relationship. Happy relationship, the person can die. My father had 60, almost 65-year marriage with my mother. Oh, one day short. You know? and then she passed away. You know? But it was a good marriage. But then now it's not. You know? So what are the true causes of happiness? So this is where motivation comes in. First of all, for renunciation, which is really simply developing an authentic motivation, recognizing what the actual causes of suffering are, what are the actual causes of happiness. It's not being religious or spiritual in some kind of a, you know, I don't know, goofy kind of way. It's actually simply being more realistic than just being hedonic. But then expanding it beyond renunciation to bodhicitta. Now, we've seen, I think, have some intimation of the magnitude of that. Quite extraordinary when we see the kind of this swell, like a wave that just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger from the four measurables to the four grades up to the extraordinary resolve. And then finally, the grand finale of these two modes of bodhicitta, aspiring and engaged bodhicitta. You see, well, this is absolutely massive. Makes sense only from the perspective, finally, of Buddha nature. And so it's very easy to go take bodhisattva precepts or simply to recite the liturgies or to have the thought, oh, I'd really like to, really, really like to achieve enlightenment for the sake of all sentient beings. That's easy. Anybody can do that. you know. But what does it mean? What does it mean and how do we do it? And how feasible is it? Is it something where we're thinking, yeah, in some future lifetime? Since the world is getting so much better, right? If you get, get reborn in this world, it's bound to be a lot better next time. Like... 2080 it should be really fun, right? We'll have 9 billion people on the planet and everything will be so cool. Except for I don't think that's going to be true. Right? So why are we venturing into these practices? I'm about to wrap up here. But to get some understanding, some vision, you know, this is Padmasambhavi laying out the whole path here. And any one of the bardos, the bardo of living, the bardo of, of dreaming, the bardo of meditation that we'll get to shortly, any one of these is sufficient, a sufficient platform for achieving enlightenment. Any one of them. You don't need all six, as mentioned yet some today, just like the four Satipatthanas, the four close applications of mindfulness. The Buddha made it quite clear. To achieve liberation, you don't need to master all four of them. Master one of them. Gain insight into impermanence, dukkha, nature of non-self with respect to your body. That will take you to arhatship, or feelings, or this, or you can practice mindfulness of breathing in 16 phases. On Sutta, Buddhist discourse on mindfulness of breathing. Practice mindfulness of breathing in 16 phases. When you finish, you're an arhat. One practice. Then you're an arhat when you come to the conclusion. So, the richness of this material, and the fact that some of it, hopefully is not just totally bewildering. If so, then, well, that would be a bit too bad. At least you're getting some imprints. But I'm doing my very best to make this intellectually, conceptually accessible, intelligible, and so that you have some vision. Not that you have to believe everything I'm saying. I think you should be totally clear on that point. I'm not here to indoctrinate every, anybody, but I keep coming, coming back to this theme. Show where, where choices are that you never knew you had. A person who's never heard about lucid dreaming it may never occur to them that maybe they could be awake in their dream because it's not like an oxymoron, but I can't do, I can't go left and right at the same time. I can't be asleep and awake at the same time. Why would I want, I can't do that until so you see, well, yes, you could, and here's how you might do it. And so as we venture into, and we'll go further today, we're just about to start, um, I'm simply following in the footsteps of my teachers, ones that I trained with for years, like Geshe Raptin and Gautra Rinpoche, and they emphasize for your daily practice, let the the main part of your practice, something like 75, 80% of your practice, let it be right where your life is, so that when you practice, you see for yourself, this was really beneficial. You see your mental afflictions subsiding. You see virtue arising. You see the way you engage with other people, the way you handle difficulties. That really you're maturing, you're growing. You're moving along in the right direction. Let 80% be there where the practice makes sense to you, have confidence in it, it theoretically, it practically. You know how to practice it, the confidence there. And you see for yourself, this is good dharma. This is like good food, it really nourishes. And then maybe 20, 25%. That can be for the practices that maybe you're not quite full grown into yet, but you can, see, you can see the connection. You can see the connection from where you are. If this continues to mature, then this would be quite accessible. And if they mature and that, then that will be accessible, and that will be accessible, and yeah, when I'm there in the, in the third or the fourth vision of the direct leaping, uh, crossing over, yeah, the um, rainbow body, that should be quite accessible. <laughs> and seeing how you fill in all the, all the spaces. You know, it's not that many spaces. It's not three countless eons of spaces. It's actually a relatively small number. Uh, and to have that vision, this, to my mind, this is what our world, in a way, needs more than anything else. We don't need a whole lot of bad news because it's already out there bad news all over the place. So we have enough material without Buddhism coming in to be really disillusioned with the trend of modern society, what's happening to our planet, the ecosphere, the economy, and so forth and so on. Nobody needs me to talk about it. I mean, what do I? I'm not an economist. I'm not an environmentalist. Didn't take that route in so many areas. I'm not an educationist. I don't know all the details of modern education and so forth, but you don't need me for that. You don't need any lama for that. But what I do feel is needed Is a vision beyond mundane well-being, beyond solving the hedonic problems, working out global warming, working out working this out, working that out, and then all you have is okay. Well, now we're not going to completely annihilate ourselves in the next fifty years. That would be that would be nice, you know. But a vision, a vision, a vision of eudaimonia, which is really everywhere, as I said, in Socrates, in Taoism, Hinduism, Christianity, Judaism, Islam. Buddhism, it's everywhere there, you know. But not simply eudaimonia. The notion then, again, I'm a Maragavadan, I'm a proponent of of path. The notion that we can not only practice virtue, which we already knew, uh, that we can not only find eudaimonia, some sense of genuine happiness and well being, which many of us probably figured out, but there is in fact a path that we could follow that would be accessible, transformative, irreversibly transformative and in fact it makes sense, doesn't require blind faith at any point, it never insults the intelligence, never violates truths which are clearly demonstrated by the scientific community, or any other truths, and to have that vision. And so 15, 20% of the practice, reading in that area, expanding your understanding, expanding the vision, putting kind of flesh and bone, Maybe it's a not good analogy, but putting flesh and bone on the vision, that it has something tangible to it, not just a kind of a vague abstraction or ab- abstraction like, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful to be a, an Arya Bodhisattva on the first bhumi, whatever that is, you know, but having a clear vision. And so that's why we will finish this, this bardo quite quickly and move along. And the practices, I think, will not be totally inaccessible. They'll be, for most people, largely inaccessible. But conceptually, that's what I'm doing. That's my job. That's what I'm here for—to try to present them so you can see them clearly, get some taste, some intimation at least, of the practicality, accessibility, the meaning of the practices. And so then, when you come back to your motivation, especially to bodhicitta, and you're you're raising first of all the, the banner. I shall I, may, I achieve enlightenment for the sake of all sentient beings. That's not too hard, even if you don't know much of what it means. That's not too hard. I mean, it sounds good, right? I would like to achieve enlightenment, perfect enlightenment for the sake of all sentient beings. But that next phrase that I highlighted, I think, yesterday, in order to do so, and then, okay, now, now what? In order to do so. And then you see from where you are right now, all the way up to perfect awakening, that it was in order to do so, in order to do so, to do so, to do so, to do so. And it's smooth. You see a whole connection there. You see a smooth continuum from where you are and where the fulfillment is. And then you see, but I'm already on that path. I'm already doing the practice. I'm already accomplishing shamatha. I'm already cultivating immeasurable loving kindness. I'm already cultivating bodhicitta, cultivating vipassana, insight into the emptiness of the mind. I'm already doing that. Well, if you're already doing that, well, then, then simply continue. And then you follow that seamless path with no choppiness, no big discontinuity, no point at which now you have to be superman. No, just continue practicing, and that it all unfolds, and then lo and behold, we see, well, this actually has been done quite recently. I heard of one woman, just recently, within the last year or so, maybe I mentioned her, maybe not, some woman living, a Tibetan woman living in Sikkim, or maybe she's Sikkim, Sikkimese, but Tibetan Buddhist. She was married. Her husband had some pretty good job there. He passed away, but they're both very devout, very very sincere practitioners. And um, he passed away, so she sim- simply then, she had nothing else to do besides practice dharma, which is, you know, good. And she was practicing Vajrayogini. Did I mention that one? Practicing Vajrayogini, yeah. Not too long ago, within maybe the last 20 years, something like that. Fairly recent, Fairly. Not, not ancient history. Certainly last century. And she was so, then she had nothing else to do. Had plenty of time for practice. Already had some real momentum you know, from the time that she was living there as a probably a housewife, mm-hmm. taking care of her husband, as I'm sure he was taking care of her, and so on. But she continued practicing Vadri Guinea, Vadri Guinea, and she achieved rainbow body. She achieved rainbow body, yeah. So a housewife living in Sikkim, housewife living in Brisbane. You know, tomatoes, tomatoes. You know. If she can, then why not? If you have the time, the faith, the devotion, you have the instruction, you have the guidance. Why not? And inspire people. I think that's what people need more than anything nowadays, is inspiration. Then I need to be told that much about how rotten the world is because, gosh, it shouts at us in every direction. But having some vision of what could be done, even in the midst of all this, how we might be able to transmute what's going on in the world into deeper compassion, deeper sense of renunciation, deeper compassion, deeper bodhicitta, and then with that awareness, and with the awareness, some understanding of these higher stages on the path, and you see the connection, you see the breadcrumbs from where you are all the way up to enlightenment, then when you're sitting down, and as we'll do now in about two or three minutes, you say, all right, now I cultivate bodhicitta, and in, in, in order to realize that aspiration, that resolve, tecitta, in order to do so, now I'm going to sit and I'm going to follow my breath for 24 minutes. And you see, that's not trivial, there's no joke, that's actually being totally realistic. That may be the most meaningful thing you can do for the time being in a 24 minute period. The fastest method, it may be, that which will propel you right along that path, as fast as you can possibly go, it might be mindfulness of breathing. might be. Okay? So we'll start now momentarily, and, and it will be a silent session, so I'd like to front load it very, very briefly. And that is, we have this array of shamatha practices. I would encourage you to go there. Because we keep on hearing this again and again and again. That if these more advanced practices, the vipassana, the daytime dream yoga, nighttime dream yoga, transmuting the dying process, being able to go to a pure land from the bardo and so forth, if you'd like that to be effective, then it would be really good to be able to focus your attention at will. right? Meditative equipoise. We've heard it so many times now. So, within the array... Here's a point. I've said it before, but now I'll say it with greater clarity. On the whole, we, living in modernity, have nervous systems that are screwed up. Nobody's fault, just what happens. You know? And it's on a coarser level. The, the body, even the subtle body with all the prana, the flow of prana, this is on a coarser level than the mind. The mind is immaterial and non-physical. The body is physical and material, made of atoms. The prana system is physical but is not material. It's not made of atoms. That's why the scientists can't measure it, but we can. Anybody can if you start looking, you know. So you have the material, flesh and bone. Then you have the subtle body, not material but is physical. And then you have the mind, which is neither physical nor material. So we're going from coarse to subtle there, right? But just a reminder. I know it's a bit redundant, but you know, Gautama, when he had really ruined his body, he didn't suddenly have a flash, "Oh, I must follow the middle way," and then run off and go med- and meditate just you know, scurry off to the, to the Bodhi tree and said, you know, with his broken frame and skinny as a rail, he didn't say, oh, now I get it, and hobble over to the Bodhi tree and say, now I... Re-. No. He got his health back first. He got his health back first. And he achieved shamatha. That's what he did first. He didn't achieve shamatha on that night. He achieved that before. He did his homework. He did his preliminary practices. I think he had Bodhicitta already. And then, when his health was back, his motivation was there, his mind was serviceable, first jhana, achieved. Then he had the confidence. Okay, now I say, I'm not moving until perfect enlightenment. But he took care of his body first. And so it's not like we shelve everything else, nothing else is important, but um, it often happens in Tibetan. I frankly, all schools of Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism for sure, Theravada, not uncommonly, Zen, I don't really know, but I think so, that, you know, just kind of jump over the body you know, this mind, mind is primary, mind is primary, all phenomena, the mind precedes all phenomena, yada, 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 mind, 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 very good. But then if we don't take care of the body, we don't balance the body, then it is said everywhere in Buddhism, the basis of your mind is your body, the basis. Damage the basis, then the mind that arises independent upon that basis won't function well. So if we just keep on coming back until the work is done, in terms of establishing, settling the body in its natural state, where it is truly and at its core, in a state of ease and looseness, relaxed, still, vigilant. And then we go to the big one, the breath. And when we're doing that in the supine position, for example, and stuff comes up, and it comes up a lot, it's not at all uncommon, that there you are totally mellowing out, and then some really nasty things start arising in the body, you know. It's not at all uncommon. I think I might have mentioned, I'm going on longer than bed, I don't think this is trivial. Um, quite a number of years ago, I went to a solitary retreat, and there was a woman who at that time was about 70, tell that story, yeah? And she, she, she took care of me in the retreat. She had a little small cabin, and I just taught her a bit of meditation. And she was meditating three, or four hours, mindfulness of breathing, supine. And I was doing my thing over in the little cabin. And uh, she had nothing else to do. Again, she had no husband. She was financially independent. Did I tell this story before? Oh, it's worth, it's worth. Um, virtuous woman, very, very good intuition, very simple lifestyle. Had a few friends, it was out in the high desert, she had a few friends, um, but very, very, had a garden to attend to, and good health, mind was clear, said it could maybe 70 or so. And so I was doing my thing over there, and then I taught her, but she really liked it, so she started practicing three or four hours a day in the supine position, and just mindfulness of breathing just mindfulness of breathing. And I was there for six months, quite strict. And she was, not strict, but a very contemplative way of life, virtuous mind, and then meditating three or four hours a day. And she told me that as she would be lying there, practicing mindfulness of breathing, sometimes her whole body would be racked by pain, really intense pain, come up in surges. And then it would move on through, and then something else would come up. and one, But it would just be kind of like this soft. The scene where dramas would be played out somatically. One thing after another, surging up and then moving through and surging up. Mostly somatic. I don't, I don't recall her saying big emotional upheavals. I don't remember any of those at all actually. But somatic, big time. And so the six months went by and she told me that before the six months period uh, that she would gather with a few other elderly friends of hers. And they would gather like once a week or so, or just chat, have tea or whatever. And they would commonly talk. These elderly ladies, 70s, 80s, talk about their pains, their rheumatism, their arthritis, their this, their that. You know, they would chat, have tea and talk about how bad their bodies felt. You know, it'd be kind of, what else would to talk about? I mean, kind of like, this is, what's ha- this is the big thing on my horizon. What's that? Oh, yeah, me too. You know, and they talk about it. But as the six months went by, she said she just found she had less and less to talk about from her perspective. And by the time the six months was over, um, the best phrase, if it just observed her and her physical movements and her demeanor, facial expression, her voice, the word that comes to mind is girlish, girlish, in a very nice way, nothing childish. But there was a lightness, a buoyancy, a cheerfulness, um, you know, like a really happy 20-year-old. Now, her body looked more more or less the same. We're not talking about an anti-aging process here. But she said her body felt so much better, really light and buoyant. And she came and visited Vesna and me in Santa Barbara several months ago. This is now, that was years ago, more than 10 years ago that I was in that retreat. And the same thing. There was just this kind of lightness, cheerfulness, joyfulness, and really loving her practice. And she's primarily relying on her own intuition now. Well, she just, I, I listen within, and I get everything I need. You know? So it's just one anecdote. I'm not presenting that as scientific evidence. But what occurred for her, um, it's all just a simple practice. I wasn't zapping her with some special vibrations or anything. You probably didn't think that anyway, but if you did, you're wrong. <laughs> yeah. She's just doing the practice. She's just doing the practice, and it's just this very gentle, basically the infirmary, and then everything was happening, and then she, if she's looking around for somebody to thank, well, she, thank you. You know, just not me. Look right down to her chest. Well, that, that was well done. Well done. So it's a long, long, long-winded way of saying, please don't overlook the body. The body probably needs your attention. There's probably more work to be done in just balancing, soothing, calming, mellowing out your whole nervous system. And how is that going to show up? In your breathing in your breathing. So tomorrow is data collection day. I'll make sure the internet is on again. Is is it on now or is it not? Anybody know? It's not? Okay, then I'll make sure it's turned on. But um, if we follow the teachings of the Buddha, they're breathing in long, breathing out long. I would suggest again, very briefly now, that's a time really for working out all the kinks, working out the kinks. And at some point, then, if you find that it's not really even so much whether it's shallow or deep breath, but that you slip into a more of a continuous, ongoing flow of respiration where it's short breath in, short breath out. It could be deep, it could be shallow, but if you find kind of a constant frequency, uh, and it's short, relative, relative to your normal breathing, it's short, and it keeps on coming back to that short, pay attention to that. That may be really significant or really deeply, deeply, deeply healing, balancing, soothing, calming your whole prana system. Right. Because that's it. The Buddha gave so few instructions. He could have, he could have given a thousand pages on this. He had time. You know, nobody would have interrupted him. You know, here's, here's the stage 113 of mindfulness of breathing. He could have done that. He said it in four, four phrases. And it's just breathing in short, breathing out short, and then attending to the whole body, and then the whole system is calmed. And then there's this calmer, 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 all the way to, fo- calmer too, all the way to the fourth jhana. That's pretty simple. So I think we might want to look very closely at that and see if at some point, incrementally or suddenly, if you slip into a very relaxed, bear in mind there's no kind of tension or arousal or excitation in this, just a higher frequency. You know, short, breathing in short, breathing out short. Release into that, relax deeply, and keep on deeply, more and more deeply relaxing into that. And as much as you can, without pushing or forcing, see if you can simply maintain an ongoing flow of mindfulness of that ongoing, sinusoidal, relatively fast rhythm of the in and out breath. Okay? So, that said, please simply choose your own method. And let's have 24 minutes. And I will simply keep the time. It will be silent meditation. More or less so. We'll continue with the text. We ended the last sentence, was on page 162, to identify this. That is, this Dhammakaya, the rikpa, it is extremely important that you identify the awareness, uh, that is, a pristine awareness of the transitional process of living. And you know about that, the shamatha, the vipassana, right into identifying pristine awareness. For that realization is crucial for this realization of the clear light in the transitional process of dreaming. In other words, this is something of a foundation, that's what he's saying here, is that some glimmering, some insight, some, some sense, some experience of the rigpa through your practice of the shamatha-vipassana track, then launches you, or provides you kind of a basis for gaining that kind of realization and going deeper in the dreaming state. Then we move up to the top of page 164. To apprehend the clear light, and again you should know in this context, clear light is synonymous with Rikpa, or pristine awareness, to apprehend the clear light in the nature of ultimate reality. Okay, that's Dhammata, again, just to repeat that. Dharmata, which is equivalent to Dhamadhatu, emptiness, nirvana. To apprehend the clear light in the nature of ultimate reality, you nakedly identify pristine awareness. You, you, you who nakedly identify Nakedly means directly, non-conceptually, without mediation. You who nakedly identify pristine awareness should position your body as before, subdue your awareness, calm that is calm the mind, and in vivid clarity and emptiness. And again, nowadays I would always say luminosity. It's the same word, but the luminosity is it's it's better. Luminosity and emptiness. That's the pair rather than simply clarity and emptiness. So in vivid luminosity and emptiness, focus your awareness at your heart and fall asleep. Okay, So there you are lying in the sleeping lion's posture. When your sleep is agitated, do not lose the sense of indivisible luminosity and emptiness. Now the luminosity, of course, is the luminosity of your awareness. And the emptiness, for starters, would be the emptiness of the substrate. But then as you're going deeper, 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 and you're cutting through the luminosity of your substrate consciousness, you cut through to the luminosity of pristine awareness. And likewise, in so doing, you cut through that sheer vacuity of the substrate to dharmadhatu. So when your sleep is agitated, do not lose the sense of indivisible luminosity and emptiness. So fall asleep in that mode. And then when you are fast asleep, so you see what you've done here, is you've kept your light on all the way. That is the light of awareness that, you know, there's our mudra, that little single finger. You've kept the light of your awareness on. You've not lost cognizance in the whole process of falling asleep, which is exactly analogous to maintaining your lucidity, your cognizance, as you're falling following through the dying process. It's very similar. So when you are fast asleep, okay? Fast asleep here means you've, got, you've slipped into stage four non-REM sleep, into dreamless sleep. If the vivid, indivisibly luminous and clear light of deep sleep is recognized, the clear light is apprehended. Now again, this is assuming that you already have some, some taste, some flavor, some sense, some insight into Rikpa already, and here it is, just by the, you're catching a wave, so to speak. The wave is the implosion of your senses, the mind imploding into the substrate consciousness, but you're bringing with it some previous experience or insight into rikpa, and if you maintain just that ongoing flow of your awareness of luminosity and emptiness as you're falling asleep, then you can cut right through to rikpa. So you see, it's all one trajectory. One trajectory. So, one who remains without losing the experience of meditation all the time while asleep. So imagine that. Imagine you have a nice long sleep, like eight hours. And you fall asleep, you fall asleep lucid, lucidly, go right into lucid, dreamless sleep, experience the clear light, and then after some time, then maybe you have a dream. Well, then you're a tukku in that dream, of course. You're born right into the dream knowingly, and then you're practicing dream yoga. Maybe you're visualizing Buddha feels and so forth. And you're, why, why not? Maintain pure vision and all of that. You know, Do state regeneration when the appearances are there. And then, when you're ready, then just slip right back in. You go into dreamless sleep, realize rippa again. But now, from this perspective, you're realizing not only, not just being lucid, and you're not simply realizing that you can actually, at least by the power of imagination, go after these different pure levels. But you have now something way beyond simple lucid dreaming. Because when you're dreaming lucidly, then you're realizing just an ordinary lucid dream that people have with no Dharma practice at all. They just are good at lucid dreaming what you're realizing in Buddhist terminology is that everything you're experiencing consists of nothing other than the displays, the creative expressions of substrate consciousness. And you know they're arising within the empty domain of substrate. And you're lucid. Which means you, like, you know within this context they can't possibly be inherently real because they're arising in the space of your mind and there are simply these light, it's a light show, it's a holographic display but with all of these modalities of sound and even the really cool one. You can even touch and so forth, smell and taste. But that's it. You're seeing everything, all of these, your mental states coming out of the substrate consciousness, all the appearances emerging out of the substrate. They're empty, they're luminous. And that's it, okay? Nobody's going to achieve liberation that way. You're just having a lucid dream, which is very nice. But whether that has any significant impact on your daily life, whether anger, craving, delusion go down at all is an open question, right? But now we see we've raised the bar way higher because here it is not just going into lucid, dreamless sleep. Which a lot of people do. It's cool. It's nice. Not just going to lucid, dreamless sleep. You're going into deep sleep and by way of deep sleep realizing rikpah. Not substrate consciousness. You're cutting through substrate consciousness to rikpah. But now imagine that you're dwelling in rikpā. And from that, a dream emerges. Well, now you see, okay, what are the real roots of this dream? Not just your substrate consciousness, because you've plunged through that. So now when a dream comes up, oh, look out, these are going to be some interesting dreams. Because these are dreams you're seeing coming directly from rikpā. You're perceiving it that way. It's not a belief. You're dwelling in rikpā. So you're having a Dzogchen view of your own dreams which means, of course, you see them as empty, but you're also seeing all of your dreams as creative expressions of rikpa. That's quite something. That's more than just having a lucid dream. Right? This is liberating. As soon as you're viewing anything, dreams, waking state, dreamless sleep, from the perspective of rikpa, well, you're on a path. That's path. And he already said, you know, you've achieved shamatha vipassana. Then there's a path. So again, one who remains without losing the experience of meditation all the time while asleep, without the advent of dreams or latent, uh, or habitual propensities is one who dwells in the nature of the clear light of sleep. So there one modality here is that if you fall asleep lucidly and you simply enter right into the clear light, then you may just remain there for the next eight hours and not be oscillating back and forth between dreaming or bit of dreams dreams deep sleep dream rem non rem not rem it'll just be non rem you'll just be in resting in rippa the whole time right so that wouldn't be bad that could be good i'm not sure whether it comes in this text don't think it does but elsewhere it speaks of the progression i, I just translated the text from the pemalingba tradition and it speaks about dreams and how people of different stages. Will, th- will they have good dreams, or then they'll recognize their dreams. They'll recognize their dreams. They'll recognize deeper, deeper. And then there comes a point at which, and it's quite far, it's way up in Tutgell, the direct crossing over, uh, very far along that path. You don't have any more dreams. Because the dreams, fundamentally, they're coming, they may, there are exceptional dreams, but overall, dreams are coming from the catalyzation or the germination of Habitual propensities. It's karma, you know, it's imprints. As you go so deep, you're transcending that. So then they don't have any more dreams. It said the Buddha in all schools of Buddhism it says the Buddha never dreams. He has no dreams. Right? It's okay. You won't be disappointed. So such a person is one who dwells in the nature of the clear light of sleep. So outside you just look like you're sleeping away, you might even be snoring, who knows, I don't know. But inside, you're simply resting in Ritpa. That's one session. You might be wondering, there's more? <laughs> well, there is, so we go right over to page 165, read a little bit more. Integration with the clear light of the elements. So here's something fascinating, and you'll see, for those of you I know, a number of you have fairly extensive background in Vajrayana Buddhism, probably had teachings on the dying process, uh, there's some very good books out, they've been out for years on the dying process and how the various elements collapse. Uh, earth into water, water into fire, fire into air, air into space, space into consciousness, and then, and then on to clear light of death, right? There's the basic sequence. But it's really spelled out in a lot of detail. And there's some very good... I've not done any of those translations, well, not elaborately, but there's some very good books to lay that out in a lot of detail. So they're easy to find. But here's a short version. But what we're looking at here is the parallel, the parallel of the falling falling asleep process and the dying process. And it kind of makes sense, because both of them are taking right to the substrate consciousness. Both of them entail a withdrawal of all of your physical senses from the environment, and both of them entail the activities of your coarse mind dissolving away. In the dying process, that tends to be irreversible. The sleeping process, generally not. So, integration with the clear light of the elements. At first, when you fall asleep with your forehead covered with warmth, Okay, so warmth comes to the forehead, uh, earth is dissolving into water. Now, what this means, I'm just remembering, because I had fairly eccentric teachings in this, uh, when it speaks, of course, it's earth element. Earth element is uh, it's within this phenomenal world, so we're not talking about carbon or iron or you know, it, things that modern chemistry has discovered. There's no competition here, it's a... It's a different way of viewing. Uh, we're speaking here of just the elements of subjective experience. The element, I wouldn't even say that. It's the elements of our loka, phenomenal world, in which when I knock the, the table, I'm experiencing the earth element. Okay. And f- contemplatively speaking, uh, Chinese and ancient Greeks and Indians, Hindus, Buddhists, and so forth, generally found five elements was sufficient. And that's, there's earth element. And then I touch my tongue, and I'm experiencing the fluidity and moisture, there's water element. And then I can feel the warmth of my body, there's, there's the fire element. And I'm moving my hand, and there's the air element, and I'm experiencing space all around, and there's the space element. And that pretty much covers everything. So it's just it's not, it's not in competition with, you don't try to say, well, are the, the heavy metals in the earth element, and what about, what? you don't do that. Just kind of That's a different discipline, it has its own strengths. Extremely good, that's why we have cell phones, not knowing about the five elements, but knowing about silicon and all that kind of thing. And th- this is very good for contemplative transformation. So, what this means, though, when he says, Earth is dissolving into, into, into water, uh, and that is the, here's what he said, the power, the potency of the Earth element, the potency of it is dissolving into the Earth, into the water element, the potency, not the Earth element itself, Right? and then the potency of the water will dissolve into fire, and so forth. Okay. So, when you fall asleep with your forehead covered with warmth, earth is dissolving into water. At that time, train in the vivid sense of luminosity and emptiness. So we're going to see this theme all the way through, right? And focus your interest in at the heart. Focus your interest, your attention at the heart. So you know what that's all about. Because when you're, when you're just to reiterate this point with a little bit more detail, and that is when you're falling asleep, when you're dying, when you achieve shamatha. In all of these cases, the prana associated with the mind converge in the heart chakra. right? And then when they are there, when they really dissolve there into the heart chakra, that's when your coarse mind has dissolved into substrate consciousness, right? or even into the substrate. But now, speaking a bit poetically, the inner sanctum, the holy of holies, whatever, uh, of, the earth, of, the, of the heart chakra, is this indestructible bindu. And you find that throughout all of Vajrayana. You don't find it in Sudriyana. You certainly don't find it in the Pali Canon. But this indestructible Bindu, Bindu is like an essence, an orb, pure energy, hyper-energy. It doesn't translate into anything we have in English. That's why I just call it a Bindu. But it's this indestructible Bindu. And it is something physical but extremely subtle. Not material for sure. It's not made of atoms. And this, in a manner of speaking, is the locus of the innate mind of clear light. That comes up a lot in stage of completion practice. In the, in the Galupa, Sakya, Kagyu tradition, the new school, new translation schools will speak more commonly of the innate mind of clear light. Dzogchen, I refer to Rikpa, primordial consciousness. This is its locus in a manner of speaking, and it's right there in the center of the heart chakra. So, of course, bringing awareness there is drawing the energy not only into the heart chakra, but ultimately into the indestructible bindu. When the energies dissolve from the heart chakra into the indestructible bindu, that's when your substrate consciousness has dissolved, melted into rigpa. So if you're in the dying process, that's when it dissolves into that. That's when you've passed through the uh, the um, dark near attainment or the blackout phase. After the various divisions arises, the white, the red, and so forth, it goes into the blackout, and then following the blackout, which is comparable to shamata. And it may be lucid, maybe not. It depends on you, what you've done before you died. But right after that comes the clear light of death. That's what the yogis abide in, the body's not decomposing. And that's when the substrate consciousness has melted into, dissolved into, the clear light of death. So for most people, it's very brief, just a time of radical disorientation. And then they're off into the bardo of donatā of ultimate reality. They'll probably be disoriented again. That's relatively short. And then they're into the bardo of becoming. They'll hang out there for a while. And in most cases, if they've not had some dharma instruction, it's just more confusion. So it's not that pleasant. It just goes from confusion to confusion to confusion, from subtle to coarse. But that's what he's talking about here. But now we're finding a little miniature replica, the facsimile, in the falling asleep process. Okay? And so just as you like to be lucid as you're dying, so that when you do come to that dark near attainment, if you've achieved shamatha, then you can probably just dwell there for maybe even hours. Just dwell in your shamatha without yet going into the clear light of death. But if you get there and you're lucid and you've had some experience of rikpa, then when the bottom falls out of that and you slip into the clear light of death, then you have a very good chance of sustaining that as well. Okay? So, at that time, don't just read the last sentence again at that time, train in the vivid sense of luminosity and emptiness and focus your interest at the heart. Then, when consciousness sinks consciousness sinks, water is dissolving into fire, and at that time, do not lose the vivid sense of luminosity and emptiness. When the mind becomes agitated, fire is dissolving into air, and at that time, too, train in the vivid sense of, the, of luminosity and emptiness. So this is, again, exactly the sequence as when you're dying. Falling fast asleep. Well, this means it means into dreamless sleep, right? Analogous to falling into That dark near attainment, the sheer blackout, loss of consciousness for most people, just like when most people fall into deep dreamless sleep, they're not aware of anything. So falling fast asleep corresponds to the air dissolving, the air element dissolving into consciousness. This, by the way, is is vijnana, which is conditioned consciousness. Conditioned consciousness is among the five skandhas. That's a rather important point. So the air dissolving into consciousness, and at that time, too, clearly and vividly focus on the heart without losing the earlier sense of luminosity and emptiness. So you're seeing a real refrain here. Then the state of dreamless lucidity corresponds to consciousness dissolving into the clear light. So it's all really clear, isn't it? You have just passed through the shamatha phase, substrate consciousness collapsing, and this is a clear light of death, a clear light of sleeping, analogous to clear light of death. Now, most people just whisk right through it, never notice it. You know? They sleep right through it. But the whole idea here is to pass through the whole process lucidly, vividly, maintaining the flow of cogn- cognizance. So then the dreamless lucidity, then the state of dreamless lucidity corresponds to consciousness dissolving into the clear light, and at that time your sleep will lucidly remain in luminosity and emptiness that is unborn and devoid of recollection. So as soon as it says it's unborn, that can only have one meaning, right? It cannot possibly mean substrate consciousness. It's conditioned, rises to independence upon causes and conditions. It's only one thing. It can only be rupa, And it's devoid of recollection. This is mindfulness. This is mindfulness. This is the mental factor of mindfulness, right? Well, when you're in the substrate consciousness, you remember. This is kind of cool, isn't it? You have those four modes of mindfulness, right? When you're practicing shamatha, having distinguished between stillness and motion, you slip into single-pointed mindfulness. What's the next one? Manifest mindfulness. And then the next one. Absence of mindfulness. That's when you slip into the substrate. right? Slip into the substrate. You've almost achieved shamatha. And then you invert your awareness in upon itself, and now it is called... Self-illuminating, self-illuminating mindfulness, right? So now you're vividly, brilliantly, radiantly awake, resting in your own substrate consciousness, illuminating the vacuum of the substrate. But there you are, right? Now you recall that absence of mindfulness. Absence of what kind of mindfulness? Absence of mindfulness of the coarse mind. You've lost your mind. You'll get it back, don't worry, when you come out of Shama, it'll be right there waiting for you. But for the time being... You've gone too subtle for it. You've gone too subtle. At least one person here is a scuba diver. So you imagine going down, 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 and after a while, if, you, if things just can't go down with you. They have too much air in them, so they'll stay up. You go deeper, 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 but some things won't be able to go deeper. They have too much air in them or whatever. They're going to stay superficial. And so your mindfulness that is one of the mental factors of your coarse mind that can't, keep on, that you, that can't come down with you. You have to kind of say, well, bye. I'll catch you later. And it stays up there, in a manner of speaking. I mean, just, you know, it's a metaphor. But then you're slipping into that absence of mindfulness, where the mindfulness of course mind has been left behind. Of course, it's not waiting for you, it's just dissolved. It's gone dormant, latent. And now you've slipped down, so you go through that phase where the mindfulness of the course mind is no longer there. But then, lo and behold, like shifting gears from like first gear to second gear, in between you're in no gear at all, That's absence of mindfulness. And then you get into second gear, and now another type of mindfulness comes in. That's the mindfulness of the substrate consciousness. Subtle mindfulness. Self-illuminating mindfulness. Now from that perspective, if you wish, and this would be an incredible experiment, then if you wish, you may take that mindfulness and say, oh, this little light of mine, I think I'd like to direct it to the past and see if I can illuminate, where was I a year ago today? And see if you can illuminate that things that you normally couldn't possibly remember in your ordinary mind because there's too much clutter, too much noise. But now you're beneath all the... I have an image I'm trying to find. It's like a swimming pool full, full of garbage. You're, you're just beneath all the garbage, all of the sedimentation, all the junk of your mind. You're just beneath that. You're into, into the clear blue step, clear blue depths, the luminous clear blue depths of your substrate consciousness, there's nothing between you and your memories. There's no junk. You know, there's no junk, there's no agitation, there's no junk. So you direct your attention, boom, you should be able to target it. And now you're using that mindfulness, and you literally are recalling, okay, what did you have for breakfast two weeks ago? Where were you a year from now? Or a year year ago, boom. And you highlight it, and because you're there focusing from the substrate consciousness, and the imprints of these memories are in the substrate consciousness, then they're right next door. So you should have phenomenal memory from that perspective, including penetrating right back through this lifetime to preceding. But you're still operating out of mindfulness, mindfulness of subtle mind. But now here we're talking about unborn. Well, then you know. You've cut through. So now you've left something else behind. That conditioned bliss, luminosity, non-conceptuality of the substrate consciousness, and this self-illuminating mindfulness. Of the substrate consciousness? Bye bye. Gone. You slip down to another domain, which is now in the fourth time. In the fourth time. Which means, everybody, I'm sure, you remember the image that I gave of of that forklift going up and seeing that, through that little narrow sliver of the present moment. And there's the past over there, and there's the future over there. The past is gone, the future hasn't happened yet. But there's that one sliver of light. Well, at least that's happening. That's the realm of actuality. I get it. That's the present. That's the present until you get right next to it. And then, whoa, the present just vanished. The sliver vanished. The crack in the ceiling vanished. There's no crack in the ceiling. And from that perspective, there is no past, present, or future. And therefore, if there's no past, present, or future, there's no recollection of anything. Therefore, it says, unborn and free of recollection, free of mindfulness. Now you're beyond that self-illuminating mindfulness, which is conditioned and it's within time. If you recognize the luminosity and emptiness of that occasion, now that occasion is, of course, rikpa. So it's the luminosity of rikpa and the emptiness of the Dhatu. If you recognize that, which is free of the intellect, totally transcending the conceptual mind, totally transcending all conceptual categories, the eight conceptual extremes of existence, non-existence, coming, going, and so on, truly transcendent. If you recognize the luminosity and, oca- and emptiness of that occasion, which is free of the intellect, which transcends, well, just that, free of the intellect, this is called recognizing the clear light. Okay, welcome home. That is similar to the dissolution of consciousness into the clear light at the time of death. So you can see what a magnificent preparation this is. Run, run this dress rehearsal a few times, and then you'll be one of those who'll be very confident. You know, be very confident that when you're going to die, well, you're you're, you're like a well-trained actor. You've done the dress rehearsal so many times that you say, "Oh, I'm on tonight." Maybe you're the understudy. And then they call and say, hey, the, the, main, the main actor is sick tonight. You ready to go? Absolutely. I've been waiting. I'm ready. Let me at him. I've done so many dress rehearsals. I know. I know. Let me at him. I'm ready to go. Have that type of attitude towards dying. Ready to go. All systems go. Prepared well. That'd be good. So if you have other priorities in this lifetime, you, you should attend to those, but I think this is pretty important. I think it took a delayed reaction for that chuckle to come. I was hoping a bit bit stronger also. But This is clearly, how do you say, a dream, because otherwise I would have controlled you and made everybody laugh. So, continuing. That is similar to the dissolution of consciousness into the clear light at the time of death. So this training for the intermediate state between death and rebirth... This is training for the intermediate state between death and rebirth... The present recognition of the dream state, the present recognition of the dream state is the real training for the intermediate state. And that is the second session. So, as we are now moving into the final two weeks, I would like to make sure tonight relatively short, but I didn't ramble that time. I kind of made sure, you know, time is short and time for some questions or comments. And I'd like to have them be totally focused on the material here. There's so many interesting things we can talk about. Practice first. So if we have a roving mic- microphone, anything coming up where I might be of some service, an observation you'd like to make, question, point of clarification, we have two weeks, and I hope you'll fulfill my aspiration that you'll leave here with confidence. So that's what I'm here for. We'll start with Kim. Thank you. How's this? Can you hear? Uh, it could be louder. Mine's very loud, yours is very soft. How's that? That sounds better. Okay, Good. so you mentioned uh, just now that uh, when you drop into Rigpa in the dreamless sleep, yes, that a dream could arise out of Rigpa. Could. And then you also said that anything in the substrate that becomes a dream is. coming we of habitual propensity. is habitual yeah. pattern. Yeah. So, and once there are no more habitu- yeah. habitual patterns, then there are no more dreams. So, how does a dream arise out of Rigpa? Yeah, it's called Taknang, pure vision. Pure vision. And that is Jujum Lingbo, when he was having as many, extraordinary number of um, teachings not from an appearance of Padmasambhava, or Mandarava, or Saraha, or Longchen Shemarachamba, and so forth. If you look at the... I mean, you must have seen it, Buddhahood Without Meditation. I mean, he had a lot of extraordinary teachers. Most of them passed away. But nevertheless, when he... I will say this out of faith. Why not? I believe what I believe. He was not simply having appearances in his dreams of Saraha, Lom Avalokiteshvara, Padmasambhava, and so forth. He was actually having experiences. They were actually... He was actually encountering the Buddha, like Tsongkhapa having pure vision of Manjushri. And so these visions, if you read his beautifully translated, um, what's it called? Crystal mirror? What's it called? Not crystal mirror. Clear mirror. Clear mirror. His, his autobiography. Uh, beautifully translated, by the way. Uh, that gives an account of a number of his, I'm almost certain there must be dreams in there. Um, so that would, that would be the answer. And that is when you're highly realized along the, in the Chut Gel, the direct crossing over, the, the visions you're having are not coming from Bhakcha. They're not coming from Vasanas, from habitual propensities. They're coming, they're coming through the hollow, hollow crystal kati channel. Their, their origin is the, the Bindu with the heart. And they're manifesting your visual field, but they're not coming from habitual propensities. They're coming directly, it's just like a pipe. They're coming from primordial consciousness. Into the field of your vision, and they're pure visions. And so, if that can happen in the waking state, and that would, is, is what happened for Jujum Lingba time and time again, he's having visions not of appearances of Samatabhadra or appearances of Padmasambhava. He's actually seeing Samatabhadra manifesting as, as Padmasambhava, and he's receiving teaching from Padmasambhava. Okay? There have been many, many cases of that. And so, those teachings that he received. Uh, were not coming from his habitual propensities; they're coming from a much deeper source. Well, if that can, and, but they're visionary. I mean, they're really like dreams. He describes them in detail, you know. But if that can happen while in the waking state, then why on earth why not in the dream state? So this is why I say I'm, I'm, I, I sometimes just throw in a little a little caveat. By and large, or in normal dream, uh, in the normal dream, whatever's appearing in our dreams is coming from our own substrate. But now, what about what about those cases, for, for which I think the evidence is very compelling, uh, in context, not in, a, in the context of, let's say, modern science, which is dominated by materialism, but let's say the context of Tibetan Buddhism, that context, it's another context. Um, I think there's very strong evidence that people do in dreams, and, and even if they're not highly realized, uh, have dreams of, that entail remote viewing, Knowing, having this strong premonition that a loved one has died and the loved one lives 3,000 miles away, or that something's going to happen, and lo and behold, then it does happen. And so, when these type of dreams happen, and and it can come just out of settling the mind in its natural state, you might start having flashes of psychic ability, extrasensory perception, then these are clearly not coming, they're not coming from imprints in your mindstream. The imprints in your mindstream are all from the present to the past but you don't have any imprints in your mind stream from the future. Because your substrate consciousness is an arrow through time, and it hasn't gotten to the future yet. So it's, it's a train that's holding, a, like you know, like a train. I mean, this is really clunky imagery, and it invites reification, which we shouldn't do. But what's stored in the substrate consciousness is what has occurred up to now, but not in the future. And moreover, not now and distant in space. Because your substrate consciousness is located where you are. Right? So, therefore, where's this information coming in from? Well, the space of your mind is porous. It doesn't, you know, it's not cellophane, it's not titanium, it's not doesn't have lead contours. So, do on this relative level, due to these very very subtle karmic connections, karmic connections, and the interrelatedness, the pratityasamutpada, the 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 weave of intersubjectivity, of collective karma, strong karmic connections, and so forth. Then you may even, as a relatively ordinary person, have information coming into your dream that is not simply coming from the germination of mental imprints in your mind stream. You may have past life recall. Good, that would be germination of imprints in your mind stream. But you may have other information coming in. And then, the more pure the mind, the more pure the mind is, then you may actually have an authentic vision of the Buddha or Tara, Manjushri, Avalokiteshvara, or what have you. And get teachings that are literally from the Buddha's mind to your mind. These two are not coming from the habitual propensities. Okay. So there's a lot of nuance there. Good question. Yeah. Oh lasso! It's six. Why don't we finally show up on time? So, but I'm going to make a point. We, you know, we have about 20 pages to go, and I think I'm going to make a point now for the last two weeks, especially, not to go on so many excursions. Uh, Try to be really just give more of a little bit tighter, more focused commentary on the text, uh, so we'll have, my my wish, I won't say promise, is that each night now, from now on, we'll have time for discussion, okay? That was a juicy one, so that was good, that was worth the time we spent on it, okay? Good. So now you know, there's your night's work, you know, I hope to see you tomorrow morning as (laughs) Vidadadas, and then I'll be, then we'll swap seats and I'll be listening with palms pressed. Have a good dinner, see you tomorrow.